We are kicking off a new series for the summer called The Divine Conspiracy. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a walk through some of the Old Testament where we look at the first three kings of the people of Israel. A guy named Saul, and then a guy that you're familiar with named David, another guy named Solomon. And as we've been thinking about these gatherings, and we know that we also have some young, uh, some of the young, the rising stars are going to be with us in the summer because we don't have the, the programming for the rising stars. We thought, you know, how do we creatively make sure that we engage and, 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 and uh, embrace what's going on in the gatherings on Sundays? And so we try to be creative about how we can do that. And so one of the things that we, we came up with this summer is that we're going to do um, some reenacting of the stories to kind of set the context because you just know that I want to bring a prop up here for something, right? Okay? So, and reenacting the story helps us engage with them, set the stage for it. And then, what's, so we're going to do that this morning, and then Mike's going to teach from a text that we're going to kind of unpack. And so, um, we've had some, some writing done by Courtney. She's going to help us kind of uh, recap the first nine chapters of First Samuel through a little bit of reenactment. And so to do that, I'm going to need some help uh, with some, for some folks this morning. Here's what I need to reenact what we're going to reenact for the context this morning. And I need a woman to come sit here and be Hannah for us. So I need a woman to be Hannah. She's going to come right here. Now, if you don't start coming, I just pick on people. So, so please, uh, woman, feel free to do that. Um, I'll, I'll uh, wait for just a second. And then I need to have a, a guy named Saul. Got a small role in this one today. Um, he is going to be handsome and probably, it says he was a head taller than everybody else. So I know you don't want to say that you're handsome. Uh, that would be uh, narcissistic of you. So I don't know if... Uh, is Tyson Nolte here? Is, uh, Ron? All right, Ron, you could be... Why, why don't you be Saul? Come sit up here, Ron. That sounds good. Now, folks, everybody else is going to be Israelites. Can you say Israelites? Okay, so when I say Israelites or the people of Israel, that's going to be you. You're going to have to do what I say. Um, and then I need a younger, a younger guy, a younger guy to be uh, Samuel for me. I need a young guy. Daniel, you want to be Samuel? Come on up here, buddy. Come on up here, buddy. All right, buddy. You come be Samuel. And then I need a priest named Eli. You don't have to be named Eli. You just need a priest. All right. Someone is going to do that. All right. All right, Marcus, come on up here. All right, here we go. So um, I will serve as the voice of God. You ready for that? That's going to be a role in here, too. All right. So um, Hannah Kirsten, come on up here. You're going to be Hannah. And so come on up here and you can make yourself look like Hannah. Okay? just do your best there with that. So uh, once there was a woman named Hannah, uh, everyone say hi, Hannah. Hannah, say hi. Oh, there she is. All right, good. Day, uh, see, Hannah, um, she was barren, and so she couldn't give birth. And so day after day, she would pray to the Lord for a child. How would that look? There we go. Okay, that's, yes, we hold our hands. That's good. All right. So um, after some time, quite some time actually, Hannah found out that she had her prayer answered. She was going to give birth to a son, and she was going to name him Samuel, and Hannah was thrilled beyond measure and rejoiced in the Lord. All right, like thrilled beyond measure. There it is. All right. And she's rejoicing in the Lord. And there she is. All right. Um, So soon Samuel was born. Okay, come on up here, Samuel. We're going to skip the birthing part of the reenactment. Uh... 
for the sake of everybody. So, in fact, and, and actually, Hannah, you can, you can sit down. I think we're done with you at this point. So that, you're just setting the stage for Samuel, so thank you for that. All right, Samuel. Uh, everyone say hi, Samuel. Samuel, say hi. Hi. There he goes. All right, good. All right, so it says, um, what we find is that as uh, Samuel uh, grew, he grew in wisdom and stature with the Lord. That looks, that looks really good on you, by the way. All right? He is now a state trooper. Um, all right. So it says, uh, uh, so Samuel ended up being, he, was, he served in the temple with uh, Eli. Who's my Eli? That's, was that, no, yeah, no, you're Eli. So Eli, uh, why don't you use this to, no, no, you're going to be a priest sort of in the temple. So why don't we use this? Just make yourself a priest into that. There we go. And you guys, you guys are going to be serving together. You're going to be serving under uh, Eli, Samuel. Okay. And so one night, they, they slept in the temple, in different parts of the temple. Uh, you're going to go over here and go to sleep. So go to sleep. And you're over here and you're laying down too. Make yourself at home. Okay. So one night, Samuel was sound asleep. And uh, he heard a voice call to him. Samuel. And so Samuel got up. And he ran to Eli, and he was like, hey, did you call me? And, and no. Eli said, no, he didn't. Yeah. You, you, no. And so are you confused? Yeah. yeah, you're confused. So you're confused, but you go back to sleep, and you go back to sleep too. Later that night, once again, Samuel heard a voice call to him. Samuel. Again, he got up and ran to Eli. Did you call me? No, I didn't call you. What in the world is going on? All right, he goes back. It's awesome having a Samuel who knows the story already. I don't have to say anything. All right, so a third time. Uh, so he was sleeping, and he, he heard a voice. Samuel. And he went over to Eli, and this time, suddenly, Eli had a thought. There it is. He had a thought, and he said, uh, no, I didn't, but maybe it's the Lord. No, I didn't, but maybe God called you. So next time you hear God's voice, he told them, you need to, you need to listen and say, here I am, Lord. Okay, so go back down. And that's, that's what happened then. And God did speak to, uh, to Samuel, and he actually told him some, some bad news about Eli that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the next day, but he did anyway. And so, Eli, you're done, so thank you very much. We'll take your, your, your cloak here. Now, so um, it says, even though, good job, good job. Um, so God had called Samuel to help lead the people. There was still much unrest among the Israelites. Yeah, groaning and mumbling and unrest. You look very unrestful. All right. They had been defeated by the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Is this what you folks had in mind? No, this is not what you had in mind. All right, now Samuel, come on up here. Samuel, uh, and he grew, and he was, um, although he became a good leader, he grew old. All right? And uh, he, he was old, and Israel, Israel was crying out, saying, We want a king. We 
want to be just like all the other nations. And Samuel, did you, you didn't like that idea, did you? No. That's right. He didn't like that. But the people refused to listen. And so the Lord then said to Samuel, fine, give them a king. Okay, and so they did. And on comes the scene. He's written, no, no, come up here. The Lord anoints uh, and actually picks a guy who's a head taller than everybody else and, uh, and anoints him as King Saul. Villainy, King Saul. Can we give everyone a round of applause? Well, good morning, Kettlebrook family. It is really... No, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's not one of your props. It's hard, it's hard to follow uh, something like that up. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll find that on page 195 uh, in your Bibles. And uh, as Troy said, we're starting a new series this morning. And uh, this is something that we do here at Kettlebrook. If you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that we will go through series that last anywhere from four to eight weeks, sometimes a little bit more. We'll either take a topic and we'll begin to like dissect that topic and we'll look at it from different angles. Or we will go through a portion of scripture. We'll go through a book of the Bible together and we'll kind of systematically go through and pull out the kind of, um, you know, principles and timeless truths that would apply to us as God's people here in West Bend or in Kewaska or Jackson in 2017. And so uh, this, is some, this is something that I've wanted to do for some time. This is a portion of scripture that I've wanted us to look at for some time as we look through First uh, and Second Samuel. And we're going to get a little bit into the book of Kings at the end. And we're looking at this dynasty of, of three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon, I'll let you guess which one is which up there uh, on, the, uh, on the overhead there, on our artist's rendition. And this is a time when God is acting and moving to fulfill many of the promises that he made uh, almost a thousand years prior to this. And, uh, and not only is he fulfilling these promises, but he is also moving people into position and places to fulfill yet promises that will ultimately be fulfilled in uh, his son, Jesus Christ. And what we have here right in the middle are these kings, many of which serve as a kind of forerunners or pictures or predecessors of the ultimate king that is going to come, God's son, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, but God is fulfilling these promises to kind of give you the context of, of the whole of the Old Testament. Um, I just want to kind of help you understand where we're at in the grand scheme of things. God is up to something. And what God is up to in the Bible is he is up to exalting himself and exalting his name in all the world. So that all the nations of the world have an opportunity to know about him and worship him. That is what God is up to. That's what he's always been up to. He began uh, a thousand years before, uh, really, the, the story we're looking at. And he, um, and he calls one man. His, ma- his name is Abraham. And he says, Abraham, uh, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. Okay? And that, out of that nation, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And uh, Abraham says, that's great, God. Uh, there's only one problem. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I, uh, we can't have any kids. 
And uh, God says, well, that may be a problem for you, but that's not a problem for me. And eventually they have this huge extended family. Uh, generations later, they go down into Egypt and there they're in Egypt to escape a famine. And while they're down there to escape this famine, they become slaves of Pharaoh. And so these, this family of God, who's supposed to be a blessing to the world, is now enslaved by this kind of foreign oppressor. And you're like, oh, how is God going to fulfill his, his you know, promises? And God miraculously, powerfully does it. He brings them up out of Egypt and he ultimately uh, settles them in this land that he has promised them. Now, at this time, a few weeks ago, we looked at the book of Judges. The book of Judges is this really kind of uh, wild and crazy book. It's this time uh, during the nation of Israel when it says in the book of Judges that Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you, if you look at the book of Judges and read through the book of Judges, you will see absolutely right. Everyone did exactly what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted. And, uh, and the result is just chaos and confusion and rebellion. And they go, you, look, you look through this whole cycle that the Judges go through where they... Uh, They kind of assimilate to all the nations around them. They want to be like the nations around them. So they fall into all sorts of idolatry, all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of sinful practices. And as a result, they get uh, kind of taken over by their enemies. And as they're taken over by their enemies, they then cry out to God and say, God, please rescue us. God, in his mercy and compassion, sends a judge, which is the book of Judges, to come and rescue them out of their oppression. That cycle happens over and over and over again. And it says, there's this recurring refrain in the book of Judges, Israel had no king. Everyone does what is right, what did what is right in their own eyes. And, you know, can you imagine that? If, if everyone did what was right in their own eyes, well, another translation is if everyone did whatever they wanted, that would be terrifying. No restraint no self-control at all if everyone did whatever they wanted i mean actually we don't have to try very hard to imagine that do we all you got to do is turn on the news at night and you can see the results of what happens when people begin to live this way and do whatever they want without any kind of self-restraint without any kind of self-discipline whatsoever and that's that's the kind of the world that we live in right now you know, we've kind of told God that we don't want him to have any authority in our nation. And now we're reaping the results of that. In fact, uh, I, uh, I talked to someone the other day and they tell me that they have been uh, in contact with some of the people in the, at the highest levels of government in our child and family services, child protective services. And they said that everybody in child protective services are absolutely just almost clinically depressed. Because they see no hope for our society whatsoever. And they're constantly having to come up against the underside of, of this lifestyle of, of showing God the door and saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And we don't want you to have any kind of authority in our life. And it's, and it's out of this terrifying backdrop that God raises up Samuel. And uh, as we just saw in this skit up here, he raises up Samuel, and God is going to do something extremely powerful through Samuel. And he begins to act and, and begins to fulfill all of these 
purposes and promises that he made almost a thousand years before. So, as in, in a, um, at the risk of being redundant and uh, kind of overstating the case, I want us to watch this kind of just four-minute video that has been made for us by our friends at the Bible Project to kind of set the stage for the entire book of Samuel. This is narrated by uh, author and pastor uh, Tim Mackey, who was a pastor in Madison. Now he's uh, out in uh, the Northwest. So let's watch this together. The books of First and Second Samuel. There are two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of First Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the promised land. And there Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters, the prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, then King Saul, and after that, King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter 2. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. About how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel, at the same time that the Philistines rise to power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant, and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the god of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on the people. And then the Philistines don't want the ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's 
trophy. And he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's covenant blessing, which opens up into the next large section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now Saul is a king. Why don't you read with me 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse, start in verse 4, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is where the video kind of left off. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old now and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to, to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you have, that they have rejected, but they have rejected me. As their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this very day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will, who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of the chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and all your vintage and give, them to your, give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. Now, what would you say if I were to tell you that I have uh, the key to life this morning. If I were to tell you that I have the key to uh, happiness and, uh, and success and, and all those other good things that people want in life, I, I could write a book, right? And I could, I could be, I'd be a rich man, right? I mean, isn't that what everybody's after? They, you, know, you know, your best life now could have me on the cover smiling, you know, big cheesy smile. And, uh, uh, and you know what, because this is, this is what everybody's, this is what everybody's after. I mean, if we could, we could have called the series, you know, the key to life. And that probably would have doubled attendance right there if we had something like that. And so what I want to do is look at, at this passage this morning and find a, kind of find out, uh, what is the key to life or actually essentially what is, 
what is not the key to life. Because what we want to do is we want to learn from the Israelites' mistakes and what they, what they have done in this situation and what not to do if we want to live a happy, fulfilling, and productive life. Because what Israel is doing in this narrative is simply expressing the logical extension of their attitude, which is, which is they've been all along, is that they are dissatisfied with God. God's been saying to them now for centuries that He's their provision, He's their provider, He's their protection, He's their salvation, and that's not enough for them. They want more. And so when they say to Samuel, we want to be a king, this is actually, they're just bold enough and brazen enough to articulate what has always been in their hearts all along. And that that's that they are totally and completely dissatisfied with God. Okay? And, uh, and this is exactly where we find ourselves quite often. <laughs> we, we really don't want God to have any real authority in our lives. Okay? We want Him to be kind of uh, part of our life, kind of like a mascot, you know. But we don't want Him to be the coach. We don't want him to be our leader. We won't want him to really call the shots in our life. And so in our dissatisfaction with God, we go off and try to fill our lives with all sorts of things that try desperately to find some sort of satisfaction because there's something true that I know about each one of you and there's true, something true about me is that each one of us has this gaping hole in our lives. This kind of emptiness in our soul that cries out for satisfaction. Kind of like an empty stomach that's grumbling all the time. And, and, and so we go around and we try to, to fill this hole in our, in our soul, in our lives. And we go to all sorts of things to try to do it. The problem is that none of those things will ever bring us any kind of satisfaction. The only one who was ever you know, designed to fill that hole is, is God himself. Okay. But, uh, but just like the, like Samuel says, to the Israelites in verses 10 through 18, he says, Hey, let me tell you uh, what this King that you've desired so much is going to do for you. You've rejected God. Okay. As the one per- the one person who's ever going to satisfy you truly, you've rejected him as having any authority in your life. And now you're going off and you're looking for something else and someone else. You want to be like all the other nations around you. Let me tell you what this king is going to do for you. You're going to end up serving him. He's going to enslave you. He's going to exact all sorts of payment from you again and again and again. And you are going to find yourself crying out in misery. This is, this is essentially the, the nature of addiction. Because whenever we go and try to fill this emptiness and this gaping hole in our souls with anything other than God, it's never going to satisfy. But it's always going to cry out for more and more and more. It doesn't matter if it's opioids and painkillers and just gets worse and worse or it's alcohol or if it's, if it's lust or if it's shopping. Whatever it is, nothing is going to ever satisfy this hole that's in our souls. I have a friend who started out 
having a mild habit. And over time, that habit turned into a compulsion. And over time, that compulsion turned into addiction. And before he knew it, he was doing a hard time. And while he was in prison, he did exactly what Samuel says would happen here. He says, he says, listen, he says, he says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. And that's where he found himself in prison, just crying out for relief from this king that he has decided to serve because he was dissatisfied with God. Dissatisfied with God. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that we were designed to only be satisfied with God. The key to life, the key to life, folks, that we find in this story, and you find it all through the scriptures, is to find your satisfaction in God alone. That's it. No rocket science here, okay? You're in church. Look around. Yes. The key to life is to find your satisfaction in God alone. And nothing else is going to do it. You know, you can scroll Facebook all you want. It's not going to fill you up. How many people go to bed at night feeling deeply satisfied because they're just on Facebook for two hours? Mm. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Author and pastor uh, John Piper kind of came on the, the, the scene with his kind of seminal book that he wrote called Desiring God. And, uh, and that's the kind of the book that kind of thrust him out onto the center stage. And, um, and in this book, he makes this statement that he's kind of become known for. It says, he says this, he says, he says, God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in Him. Okay, let me say that again because that's, that's kind of mouthful. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, in God. Okay? I want you to just turn that over in your heads a little bit, that statement. God is most glorified in us, in our lives, when we're most satisfied with Him. Kind of run that through the filter of your life and your existence and kind of think it over if, it's, if you think it's true or not. And if you want to this summer, you can go out and pick up a copy of Desiring God. You may not agree with everything in there, but it is, you'll find it thought-provoking and profoundly challenging. God is most glorified in us. He gets, he gets the most glory. He gets the, he gets the most praise. He gets the most credit in and through our lives when we are most satisfied in God, that we're most content in God, when we find our enjoyment and our pleasure in God and God alone. We reflect Him the best to the people around us who are watching us. But when we go off and we go and try to find our satisfaction and our fulfillment in anything else other than God, we are going to be sorely disappointed. And God is not going to be reflected well in us. But have you ever been around those people that are, they're just, just so content and so satisfied with who God is? This is the, this is the uh, experience of the people who just went to Esperanza Viva, the high school kids. They came back. They said, 
you know what? They said, we, we went down there with more stuff in our luggage than these kids have in their cubby holes, in the dormitories. And you know what? They're so much happier than we are. Isn't that amazing? They're so much happier. They're just filled with the love and contentment and satisfaction with God. And this is exactly what Israel, this is what they were told to do from the very beginning. When they, when they were just about to take over, uh, go into the land, go into the land that God had given them. God was kind of reiterating the law to all the Israelites. And he says, listen, this is what I want you to remember. When you go into the land that I'm giving you, this is what I want you to remember. I want you to do this one thing. Can you remember this one thing? Do, the, do this above everything else. I want you to, okay, this is not too complicated. I want you to love me. Will you simply love me? Will you trust me to know that I have your best interests at heart? And will you, will you obey my ways and show that you love me by obeying my ways? That's all that I want. And that if you do that, if you do that one singular thing, then it will go well for you. That's what you were designed for. You were designed to have God as the center of your life. But of course, Israel didn't do that. The, the history of the nation of Israel is that them going off and looking for everything else other than God to be the center of their life. And it's, it's, it's a history of one disaster after another. That's because Israel is a nation made up of broken people, much like we are. And one of the ways that we're, our brokenness manifests itself more than anything else is in our wanting, in our desires. And we go off and looking for anything else other than the one thing that can satisfy our soul. C.S. Lewis once said that we have broken wanters. We want all the wrong things. And advertisers know this, so they capitalize upon it, you know. They just take advantage of that situation. And, uh, but C.S. Lewis says this. He's got this, great, he's got this great quote there from his book, The Weight of Glory and Other Dresses. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He says, we're, we're, we're like kids that are just making mud pies and we're content with that when God is offering us so much more in himself and in who he is. The key to life is to find your satisfaction in God alone. Maybe one of the best things that we can do this summer is to just get into this practice of, of getting up. And before, you know, your, your feet hit the floor, or before you go to the shower, or before you grab that cup of coffee, well, maybe you should wait and get the coffee first. Just kind of get coffee first, wake up. And then, and then, and then you tell God, Hey, God, all I want today is you. Like the psalmist says, earth has nothing that I want besides you. You're it. You're what I was created for. And you just, for a couple moments, you just remind yourself of that 
central fact and truth. That would be life-changing right there if we all did that in the morning this summer, right? Just kind of sit there with a big goofy grin on our space, space face. God, you're it. You're what I want. I don't need anything else other than that. I remember hanging out with an Egyptian brother one time. This guy's just an amazing guy. His name's Mafti. And we were spending some time in prayer. And, uh, and I remember listening to Mafti pray. And, and as he prayed, he was praying and thanking God for all sorts of things. And, and I was struck by the fact none of it was material. He wasn't thanking God for his car. He wasn't thanking God for his family. He wasn't thanking God for his house. He wasn't thanking God for any of that. All he was doing is thanking God for everything that God had done for him. He said, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your salvation. Thank you, God, for the fact that you've forgiven me. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for filling me with your spirit. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Thank you for... And he just went going on and on and on. And he never got around to saying anything material. But he's just so absorbed at the fact that God himself was his soul's satisfaction. That's what he was created for. To find his satisfaction in God alone. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've found yourself in a divorce situation. And now you've got this gaping hole, this relational hole, where you once had a spouse. And, and everything inside of you is driving you to go out and get on the websites and dating sites and go find somebody or some, somebody who's going to fill that hole. But I'm here to tell you that no one's ever going to fill that hole until you first fill that hole with God himself. And you allow God to heal you and God to come into you and be a part of your life. I have a friend, she's been divorced now for 10 years. I was just so happy for her because she hasn't rushed out and just gotten remarried. She said, Mike, I've just let God be my husband. I've just let him minister to me. Just let him speak to me. Remind me of his promises and his protection, his provision, the fact that he loves me. He cares for me. And she hasn't had any lack of offers, let me tell you. But this is where we need to find ourselves, is where God and God alone is enough for us. And as, as a church, we can get caught up in this too. You know, here in America, you know, it's like we don't have church until we have a building, right? Okay. Well, we're in a building now, so I, I, can, I can say that. But, I mean, I mean, was it an embarrassing when we were meeting at Badger Middle School? If you go down in, in Jackson or up to Kewaskia and meet in a high school, how embarrassing. Just like, and just like the nation of Israel says, we want a king. We're not a legitimate church until we have a building, you know. Or until we get, like, smoke and mirrors and lasers up here, you know, so we can actually worship God. Because we've got lasers. Because God isn't enough. Meanwhile, down in China, they meet in apartments, and all they have is God. And I don't know if you know this, but the church is exploding in China, because He is their soul's satisfaction. 30,000 baptisms a day go on in China right now. 
Even Time magazine says that China is going to be a majority Christian nation by the year 2025. How can they do that? They don't have a stage. They don't have lights. They don't have, they don't have smoke and lasers. <laughs> but you know what? They have God. And they have found him to be the source of their contentment. Eventually, Samuel goes off and finds a king. His name is Saul. And at first you think, oh, this guy's going to be great. He's so humble, he can't even find him. They've got to pull him out of the luggage compartment because he's hiding from people when he's going to be anointed king. And you're like, wow, this guy's really humble. But actually, the opposite is true. It's not that he's humble. It's that he's terrified of people. And he's so terrified of people that he's addicted to approval. And he will do whatever it, it, it takes to keep his ratings high. And let me tell you, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster, which is what Saul was was a complete disaster. And in the, the aftermath of Saul's reign, or in the waning days of, of, of Saul's reign, God goes off and, and searches for another king. Someone who's going to be a, a king after his own heart. You know what happens as he goes out? He finds this little shepherd boy. He's the youngest of eight, eight brothers. You know, he's you know, too young to even shave. And he's off there and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's watching the sheep. And Dave's sitting there with his sandwich, you know, and he's just singing praises to God. And he says to himself, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything else. Anything else other than God. And God looks down from heaven and he says, that's the one right there. That's who I want. He's got a heart that seeks for me and finds this contentment in me and me alone. David goes on and writes some of the best psalms that we've ever had. Why don't you put some of those psalms up there? That he this is what David says, Psalm 62. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I don't want anything else. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything else and god looks down at david and says that's the one (laughs) he's the one anoint him king and so he does david eventually goes on to become king he does a really good job too but because david is part of this thing called the human race he's broken too and he ultimately has his own failures but see david is a picture he's a picture of the king who is to come the perfect king Jesus. And Jesus came in the lineage of David as a descendant of David, as the fulfillment of David, of what David was, was a picture of. And Jesus comes on the scene, and it's really interesting. One of the first things he does is he goes and he has a conversation with this woman who's been divorced five times. <laughs> Can you believe that? And, and he says to her, in John chapter 4, you want to put this up there? Can you get the John verse up there? He says, hey, listen, he asked her for a drink of water. And she's like, you know, wow, okay, how can you be asking me for a drink of water? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you come to me for your life and your sustenance and your satisfaction, you are never going to be disappointed. 
In fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up on the greatest day of the feast and he says, Hey, listen, if anyone here is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And they will find in themselves a well rising up to eternal life. The key to life is to find your soul's satisfaction in God and God alone. Through the person of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you have never been told that before, we want to help you to understand that here at Kettlebrook. The fact of the matter is that we were each designed, hardwired, with this gaping hole inside of our souls. You're always going to be looking for something or someone to fill that until. You fill it with Jesus Christ. May this summer, may you know that your soul's satisfaction is found in God and God alone. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at the story of the Israelites and Samuel demanding a king, we're just struck with the fact that you gave them what they wanted in your kindness and your mercy. But you said, listen, this is what's going to happen when you, when you abandon me as your king and you go look for other things, you're going to be enslaved. And there's people here, we're, there's people here who are enslaved to all sorts of things. And Father, I pray that in your goodness and your kindness and your mercy, you would allow them to turn and cry out to you that you'd release them from their slavery. Father, for those of us who had known you, we know you, but we reject you as our soul's source of contentment and satisfaction. We've been going off looking for all sorts of things, and it never seems to work out for us. And here we are at the beginning of the summer season as a community of people. And we want to be like David. God, we want to be like David this summer. He says, my soul finds rest in God alone. You are a shepherd. I don't want anything else. I pray that that might be the heart, the cry of our heart this summer as we seek to be people who reflect you to the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.